0: Hey, Reach Montreal, and uh, anybody visiting with us online, uh, we're really thankful that you're able to join us. Uh, I just want to, before we jump into this week's teaching, uh, draw your attention to just a couple things um, about this online church platform. Uh, If you look above or to the right, uh, there will be a panel uh, of links that help you connect with us at Reach Montreal. Uh, It'll provide our website access to YouTube, Facebook, uh, online giving, uh, and any other contact information that you'd like to connect with us during this season. Uh, And for all of you who call Reach Montreal home, uh, just to give you a heads up of some of the things to expect in the coming weeks, uh, we are gonna be looking at rolling out some teaching uh, for DNA groups and how to kind of really help Uh, you as a church continue to connect especially during this season. Uh, We are going to be touching base with those of you who are coming through our membership process um, and also just coming to the end of our fiscal year as a church and looking at our budget for next year. Um, So just stay tuned, keep your eyes open for those things as we uh, continue to just try to stay connected um, during this season as we really just weather the storm and go through coronavirus uh, isolation together as a church. Today though, we wanna start a new series. Uh, we wanna get into this teaching series that is gonna take us through the letter of First Peter. And the series is called Hope for Exiles, Words from First Peter. And the reason why we're doing this, we, this wasn't planned until, well, all of our plans got changed. Um, but we're gonna be walking through this letter because I do believe as I've wrestled with this text and I've sat with this, this is a letter that has some very important and very relevant words to speak to you and I uh, in this strange time in this strange cultural moment, but also in this strange season of social distancing and isolation. Uh, So as we jump in, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that uh, we even have the privilege to do this, that we can gather like this, that we can use technology and digital platforms to still stay connected in a way that's meaningful. I pray for uh, us that this is this is just hard. Um, I just pray for each one that is just um, you know tuning in and, and still leaning in to what we're doing as a church, and that you would just encourage them. I pray especially you would use this new series, that you would use your word, oh God, to to speak hope to to a strange moment, into strange situations and to to things that that we can't quite get a grapple on and and know about that you would just bring certainty and trust in you through that. Uh, We ask that you would do it for your fame, for your glory, and in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in a day when here we are being told to stay at home, um, thoughts of home and feelings about home might seem a little bit different. Um, When stay at home is being enforced, it kind of changes how we feel about home, right? Uh, Usually home kind of brings out feelings of of rest, of comfort, of, of familiarity, uh, there's kind of like the motif of, of being home, of home sweet home. There's something intangible almost about being home. But today, because we're, we're forced to be home, we're, we're pushed into our homes, uh, it may bring up feelings for you of, of restlessness or, or fatigue or anxiety as we work from home, as we eat at home, as we uh, have limitations on our travel and our, and our socializing. It may bring out different feelings of home. Uh, but home, being home, and, and homesickness is, is a nostalgic thing usually when we speak about it. Uh, this is especially true for anyone who's experienced immigration or especially refugees who have experienced being forced from their home. Uh, the reality that you are not, you know, from here. Where did you come from? It forces you into a, a strange uh, an unknown and, and foreign place. It's a dislocation of of who you are. It's a displacement or a feeling of otherness that comes up. And for me, as I kind of look around and I I just kind of feel this cultural moment, I I tend to think in movies. And the scene that comes to mind as I just kind of like process where we are is a scene from The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy arrives in Oz for the first time and she's there with her basket and her little dog, Toto. And she, in this scene right here, she says, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And as she looks around with kind of like bewilderment, with disorientation yet awe, there's, there's a sense that we are feeling something similar today. That on several levels that you and I Spiritually and personally, for sure. But also socially and culturally, there's a, there's a strangeness. There's a strangeness to what we're feeling. There's a strangeness to what we're experiencing because we're not quite where we were anymore. That everything has changed. That, that the most meaningful things have changed. And this is especially true, if you haven't noticed, of the Christian identity. That in our cultural moment, Christian beliefs and values are not exactly what you would call the norm. We are now culturally outside the the inside. That we are actually strangers to the wider cultural ethos of things. That the Christian values and, and story of meaning is no longer at the center or the dominant worldview that shapes kind of the cultural fabric of Western culture. And that's relatively new historically when you look at Western civilization. But today, the Christian sex ethic or the view of money and material things and possessions or the views on morality and, and education or the view of personhood and our body, all of those things that have shaped the moral fabric of Western society are becoming less and less central. And this change, this this strangeness, this feeling of showing up in Oz and knowing that we're not quite where we were is impacting our churches. It's impacting our churches greatly. I, I regularly share stats with us that 90% of churches in North America in the Western kind of context are declining or growing slower than the rate of their communities. In North America alone, we're seeing between six and 8,000 churches close their doors every year never to be reopened never to be revitalized or replanted but just just closed and here in Canada we feel this too in the last 50 years which is a relatively fast short period of history we've seen the attendance in churches go from 70% of Canadians down to 15% that today Almost half, about 47% of Canadian teenagers have literally never attended a religious service of any kind. And the largest religious group or the largest affiliation of Canadians today is called the nuns, N-O-N-E, the unaffiliated. 35% of our nation would say, I don't I don't really think about that stuff. <laughs> I don't really consider myself an affiliated person about religious ideas and thoughts. And for those... Here in Montreal and Quebec especially, we feel this even more, knowing that we live not only just in a a place in our country that's unreached, but we live in the least reached region of the Western Hemisphere, with less than 1% of Quebecers being truly acquainted with the gospel of Jesus Christ in any meaningful way. So historians and experts and scholars have tried to grapple with what this means and the trends that this sets for us as we look forward But two terms have been used to kind of describe this, this awes ness that we see ourselves in. Some have called it post Christian, meaning that we were kind of Christian, that Western society was Christian, and now it's post, it's beyond Christian in its values and worldview. Others, and I prefer this, have called it post Christendom. So, what we've seen is in Christendom, it's the reality that since the 1960s, we've really seen an erosion a decline of the Judeo-Christian pillars that kind of held up Western civilization for many, many millennia. Now, Christendom started formally and officially in the 4th century in Rome when Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official state religion. And that was a massive shift from kind of a grassroots movement of Galilean fishermen and tax collectors who bowed a knee to lord jesus instead of caesar and all of a sudden it went from that kind of ragtag marginalized and revolutionary to an official state religion top down so instead of grassroots bottom up it became a religious movement from top down and what happened was in christendom christians felt at home They felt at home because culture at large was shaped by Christian beliefs and Christian values, that the predominant worldview of Western culture was actually shaped by Christian values. But that's not true anymore. It's just not the case that we we can't go back and we aren't going back to that anytime soon. And the question kind of hangs for us is, should we try to get back there at all? Alan Roxburgh in his book, The Missionary Congregation, reflects on this movement of Christendom and post-Christendom. And he says, just as the fourth century adoption of Christianity by Constantine forced the church to struggle with its self-understanding as the new center of the culture, 20th century Christians must now struggle to understand the meaning of their social location in a decentered world. He's pointing out the reality that this shift to post-Christendom means that the Christian worldview is now decentralized, that we're at the margins and the periphery, not central to culture anymore. Now, where does that leave us? Well, Well, it leaves us as a culture Uh, looking specifically at religious explanations of the world generally and Christian explanations of the world in particular are now considered very differently. Whereas before they were considered central to value and and morality and meaning and destiny, that these are now considered kind of pre-modern or archaic or maybe even increasingly oppressive ideas in the marketplace of thinking. Why? Well, because as a culture, we've moved on. We've moved on to progressive and enlightened explanations of our world. And now for you, if you are not a Christian, you don't fall into kind of the worldview of Christianity and the values of the biblical teaching of Christianity, then you too have a worldview that you are shaped by a story that gives your life meaning and value. That's everyone, everyone has one. Sometimes it's called a worldview. Everyone has a worldview that gives us answers to life's most important questions. And it's an important thing to think about of where did your worldview come from? Is your worldview as a Christian or a non-Christian making sense of the world in a way that offers you value and, and satisfaction and fulfillment? And ultimately, is is there any kind of answer to some of the things that we're experiencing right now as a culture? Especially with the sudden impact and the shaking of COVID-19. Does your worldview provide any kind of hope or recourse or answer to these things? These are important questions. And to just locate us a bit, this post-Christendom shift is really a seismic shift and what it it means. I mean, it's massive in its implications. But just to like give you a taste of this to locate us, what it means is that the Christian belief system has moved from the center to the margins, from the majority to the minority, and it's forced us as Christians to move from being settlers at home to strangers in exile. It's forcing us to reevaluate our Christian identity and what the church actually is, and then reimagine the future in a post-Christendom and post-COVID-19 society. And especially now, just as an aside, I think over and above some of the social impact that we're feeling from the coronavirus, that are very real, some of the the job loss and the, the economic situation that's coming and the mental and emotional health challenges that this presses into us, Uh, the social distancing and the isolation and the loneliness and the disorientation that comes from that, those are are big, big deals. But what this does also is it leaves much of the church in the West scrambling to define who and what it is. This is a much-needed shock to the system of consumeristic Christianity of kind of this Western brand of of churches that are filled with people who have asked Jesus into their hearts instead of laying their lives down at his feet. It's forcing us as a church to, to move past thinking about entertaining Sunday experiences for people and finding creative ways to kind of tantalize the masses with inspirational and emotional songs and talks. And honestly, my hope and my prayer is that out of this, out of this kind of shaking, a healthier Western church will rise up from the ashes of this therapeutic and enlightened, entertainment-driven thing that it's become. That's my hope, that's my prayer. And as we reflect on kind of the shifts caused by post-Christendom, and the shifts caused by what it's going to look like to thrive in a post-coronavirus kind of society, it might seem very strange to say, but I'm actually thankful for these shifts. Why? Well, because a post-Christendom Canada is also a pre-Christian Canada. A post-COVID-19 Montreal and Quebec is also a pre-Christian Canada. Montreal and Quebec, it provides us with opportunities to speak hope into situations that we never would have had the opportunity to do. It gives us opportunities to move towards relationships and neighbors and and love people and serve people in ways that really tangibly weren't possible before this happened. And so, for me, rather than see these shifts as kind of signaling a loss of a culture war. As if we in the church have been locked into this millennia long uh, war with secular and progressive ideas. Instead, I think this calls us as the church to a missional opportunity to live out its true identity as a countercultural community of exiles, of strangers, of, of, of aliens, of those that, that really don't fit in because this isn't home. And in a book called Post-Christendom, fittingly, Stuart Murray, historian, sums this up for us. He says, as the last generation who is familiar with the Christian story and for whom churches still have cultural significance dies, the change from Christendom to post-Christendom will be complete. Then, for the first time in many centuries, Christians in Western culture will be able to tell the Christian story to people for whom it is entirely unknown, a challenging scenario, but full of opportunities we have not had for generations. So Christians, the church, you and me, it's vital to realize that this this is our future, (laughs) That, that we cannot go back and we should not want to that post-Christendom and post-coronavirus society is our future, that now we have an opportunity to strive not to get back to normal, but to actually reach forward to a new normal that looks to define what the church is and and what the church does according to Jesus' call. It's a time for us to reorient our understanding of Christ's gospel and Christ's church. And as Jesus speaks of his followers, he says, no one who puts their hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Why? Because Jesus is saying like, this is, this is about renewal. This is about future hope as we move forward to the home that we have not yet been to. That we're nostalgic for this new restored creation. And that's what Christ comes to offer. Jesus is saying, burn the ships, don't go back. Going back isn't an option, but thriving as hopeful exiles in a strange culture is. And this all brings us to First Peter. This gives us the backdrop for kind of the, the why of First Peter. What is Peter doing in the letter? What, what is he doing as he writes this letter to Christians scattered all over the ancient world? In a sentence, if you could just take Peter and wrap it up in a sentence, Peter is trying to just get through to you and I and especially to his first century audience that you are not at home. That Peter's letter is a revolutionary letter to exiles. That it's a manifesto of resistance for revolutionaries, for the first Christians and the 21st century Christians who are physically exiled or spiritually and personally exiled in a strange culture. And in Peter's case, his audience was geographically and physically exiled, but that's not what he's talking about. He takes the reality that they're geographically displaced to make a much bigger and universal point that the Christian identity, that there's something so key to it, that to to be a follower of Jesus is to be a stranger In the broader, wider culture, it starts to sound and feel a lot like post-Christendom. So let's check out the first verse of Peter's letter here and watch how he starts. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, underline that one and, and highlight it and double tap it of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter starts his letter with identity. And he's going to do this all throughout the letter. He's going to draw our eyes to identity. Regardless of what's happening out here, he draws our eyes to identity and who we are. And he starts by self-identifying as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the word apostle really just means messenger a sent one or or messenger. But an apostle is a really key distinction. He's not just a disciple or follower of Jesus. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, to be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. So you had to actually have lived and breathed and and witnessed Christ crucified and resurrected. Now, that's a big deal. And a little bit later in chapter five, Peter will say it again, "I'm, I'm an eyewitness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now here's what's interesting about Peter though and his identity is this is actually strange for Peter to say that the Peter of the gospels that we see kind of like living life and doing life with Jesus is very different than the Peter that we see here, the Peter that we meet here and the Peter of the book of Acts that kind of historically documents the growth of the church. In the gospels, we see that Peter is like, he's a middle-class fisherman kind of waiting, hanging out, waiting to take over daddy's fishing company. And then he kind of like, okay, I'll follow Jesus. He's my rabbi, I'll follow him. And then all throughout the gospels, Peter is kind of a self-assured loudmouth. He's often challenging and even correcting Jesus. Uh, Jesus calls him Satan at one point, not a good day for Peter at all. And Peter ultimately abandons Christ at, his bi- at the time of his greatest need on the eve of his crucifixion. And by peer pressure from a teenage girl, three times just says, I I have no idea who you're talking about. I never knew that Jesus until the book of Acts. And we see a very different Peter. We see a Peter who, yes, was an apostle, but now Peter has experienced the risen Christ, that he is full of the Holy Spirit, that he preaches arguably one of the best sermons ever. 3,000 people in that moment bow a knee to Jesus And two years after he pens this amazing letter, he is actually martyred for the name of Christ. This is a very different Peter. The identity of Peter experiences a very significant shift from kind of just follower of Jesus, fisherman who now I'm just hanging out with Jesus. And then, yeah, well, when it's inconvenient, I'm not really affiliated or associated with Jesus to someone who encounters the living hope of the resurrected Jesus and is never the same because of it. And we, over 2,000 years later, get to benefit from that, from the penning of this letter. But Peter doesn't spend time on himself and his identity long before he turns the corner right away to speak to the church to remind his audience of their identity. And that's what's really key about the letter. And did you notice what he calls them? He calls them elect exiles. And put another way, he calls them chosen strangers. He calls them citizen aliens. Now, right away, you see the oxymoron of that, the irony of that, that you're either elect and chosen and privileged or you're in exile. (laughs) That you're either chosen or you're a stranger. That you're either a citizen or you're not. You're an alien, you're a stranger, you're a foreigner. But he takes these two words and pulls them together to show us the tension of his entire letter, of his entire letter to the first century audience. The whole tension that he stresses here is how Christians are to live in this world while simultaneously living for another world. To be an elect exile is to know who you are, but to know where you are. And in the context of Peter, it's important to understand some of the history here. But for some of you who are not into history, uh, I don't want to bore you. But the context here, what Peter is doing, he's writing from Rome, the empire Rome, around the 60s A.D., and this letter isn't just written to one group or one church. It's a, a letter that's actually written to Jewish and Gentile Christians as a circular letter that would just be sent across churches everywhere. And that's why he names several places. But just to understand the context a little bit, this was right after Emperor Claudius actually forced Christians out of Rome for causing trouble. Why? Why? because of the uproar caused by them giving their allegiance to Lord Jesus and not Lord Caesar, not the emperor. That that this has just happened. So he's speaking to Christians who have physically and geographically been displaced, been sent out from home. And he calls them elect exiles. Now in Rome, citizenship was a big deal. It was a, a very high privilege and status, but it was only given to free individuals, those who were truly free. And it came with tons of perks, uh, legal rights and property and protection of all kinds. And if you were not a Roman citizen living in Rome, it meant that your life was always at risk of being taken for whatever reason, because you didn't enjoy the status of citizen. As a citizen, you could stand uh, for government election. You could participate in priesthoods of religious orders. You could own property. You could legally be married and legally divorce. You could pass on inheritance and land and property to your children. Citizen was a very, very high privilege in Rome. And there was only two ways to become a citizen. And I'm going to introduce this. and we're going to see it come out throughout the letter as we go through our study. But there's only two ways to become a citizen. The first was by birth. And you couldn't just have one parent; it actually had to be both parents. and you could be a Roman citizen by birth if both parents were Roman. Or the second option is that you were nationalized as a citizen. You could receive a new identity, new nationality, and a new home, but only by the emperor himself. And a little bit later, the, as Rome broke out into provinces, the governor was going to uh, c- took over that role and he could give citizenship. And as Rome expanded to become the amazing empire that it did, this huge expanse of power, it would kind of conquer new land, make them provinces of Rome, and then they would allow aliens and foreigners to become citizens and they'd call them uh, provinciales, but they'd be resident aliens by loyalty and service to the empire. But if you weren't willing and able to be loyal and serve the empire then citizenship wasn't even an option. Now you can understand the backdrop a little bit of Peter talking to Christians who have literally and geographically been exiled. They've been sent out because they are not citizens. They do not belong to Rome. They belong to an an entirely different kingdom. And Peter calls them elect exiles, chosen strangers, citizen aliens. It's amazing. And what he's doing in that moment is he's synthesizing their covenant identity as the chosen people, the privileged people of God. Later we'll see him unpack it and call them chosen people and royal priesthood and holy nation. Why? These are all hyperlinks to the Old Testament. To the reality that God chose a very insignificant people to draw people's eyes to the significance of himself. And Peter is tapping into this to remind a people that is displaced, dislocated from the wider culture of whose they are, regardless of where they are. Peter calls them elect exiles to remind them of whose they are, regardless of where they are, who they belong to, regardless of where they find themselves. And there is something so rich and so foundational about the Christian identity that allows every Christian of every time in in history to thrive, not just survive, but thrive as strangers in a wider culture that doesn't believe what we believe, live how we live, and value what we value. And this is why the language the biblical language and motif of exile has really for us in the West for the first time actually gained resonance and relevance because as our culture has leaned away from Christian beliefs and, and leaned away from the building blocks of the Christian worldview, now we're sensing a feeling of dislocation. You, you, you and I as a follower of Jesus, we're, we're feeling a sense of otherness now for the first time in, in a very long time. And the challenge is that now we need to learn not just how to survive and just kind of like grin and bear it. It's like, oh, okay, well, Jesus, come back. But actually thrive as exiles. Actually live as agents of change and missionaries in strange places. Uh, Professor Lee Beach a professor at my university in, in Ontario. He wrote a book called Church in Exile, Living in Hope After Christendom. So you can guess what he's, he's driving at. But here's how he sums this up. Listen to what he says. In the biblical perspective, the people of God are by nature exilic. They're exiles. The people of ancient Israel and early Christians were plunged into cultural situations where who they were and what they were called to was at odds, sometimes drastically so, with where they found themselves. What uh, Beach is pointing out here is that the identity that Peter is reminding his audience of, the recipients of his letter, is that their identity is not wrapped up in where they are. It's not even wrapped up in what's happening where they are. It's wrapped up in something entirely different that they are not to settle in, that they are not to look for home here. Now, the theme of exile and this key motif, we miss it because we haven't needed to see it. (laughs) But almost every single book from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament is absolutely drenched with this trope and motif of exile. Uh, one scholar has called exile the foundational meta-narrative of the Old Testament, meaning it's the thesis of the entire Old Testament. And it's threaded through every book in the Old Testament. From the exile in the garden of our first parents from Eden as they get sent out from their home, to the wanderings of Cain in exile, to the call of the stranger, the foreigner himself, Abraham, to leave his home— uh, to Jacob who goes into exile to flee Esau, to Joseph who is exiled as a slave in Egypt and never gets to return home, to Israel's national slavery and exile in Egypt, and then to the constant threat throughout the middle part of the Old Testament of, of enemies throughout the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom of Israel, to the conquest of Assyrian, Babylonians, Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. I mean, the entire Old Testament is drenched in how to thrive as exiles in strange places. But the key shift in the Bible that sometimes we can miss is that exile isn't simply an experience of national Israel. It's not just an experience historically that's interesting that we can look at in the Old Testament, that exile is actually the universal experience of all humanity. That the first exile from the garden the first exile of our first home, fully present with God, that since that first exile that you and I as human beings have experienced this this again soul level longing for home, this feeling of lostness, of trying to find our true self, a feeling of displacement, a feeling of restlessness, a feeling of I just want to get home. It's a feeling of being homesick for somewhere that we haven't quite been yet. And C.S. Lewis very famously said, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another, another world. I think he's right. That this kind of homesickness of the soul is not just merely a a materialistic need that we can kind of slap a band-aid on with, with consumerism and, and binging and shopping and, and, and romancing. Like it just, it's just, it doesn't do it. I think my favorite modern author to pick this up and develop it in such a great way is James K.A. Smith in his book about St. Augustine. He, he calls this thing, <laughs> he calls it a knotted homeness And here's what he says. Listen to how he captures this. If there's a map inscribed in the human heart that shows where home is, the fact that we haven't yet arrived doesn't make it fiction. It might just mean there's a way we haven't tried. Not at homeness is when we've fooled ourselves into thinking that we're at home with distraction, tricked ourselves into feeling settled only because we've sold our home hunger for entertainments. A sense of not-at-homeness becomes a gift that creates an opening to once again face the question of who we are. Notice what Smith does is he takes this not-at-homeness, this homesickness, and he doesn't just say like, oh yeah, that's kind of universal to us. What he does is he immediately turns the corner to identity. That you and I, we shouldn't ignore that. That we should actually embrace it. As a gift, as an act of grace, because what it does is it draws our eyes to who we are. So, for you, what is some of the not at homeness that you're experiencing now? What is kind of a feeling of displacement or, or exile that you're feeling now, especially because of some of the changes, the drastic changes of, of the coronavirus? What losses have you experienced in, in the last few weeks? How are you feeling dislocated or or displaced? What are some of the broken relationships that you've had a minute to slow down and and think about, maybe for the first time in a long time? What is that nag of of hopelessness or despair or lostness or unsettledness that you're feeling in this season? What about health and sickness or or mental and emotional health and sickness? How have you found yourself self-medicating or or using things for kind of escapism to to move towards finding your true self. Those are so important to slow down, not to just kind of drown it out with the next thing, the next relationship, the next job, the next fill in the blank, but to slow down and understand that that not at homeness might be the greatest gift to you to actually discover who you really are. And God allows that to just kind of like hang, hang in our heart and hang in our soul so that we understand that something went wrong. That when we left home with him, that all we're going to do is we're going to run around elsewhere looking to other things that ultimately will not do what only he can. And that heart level restlessness is a symptom of exile, a sign that you and I aren't yet home that we're, we're nostalgic for a place we've never been, that we can almost like taste this, this experience that we're longing for so deeply. And today, as the feeling of, of otherness, of kind of being outsiders grows, let me just encourage you to lean into some of the questions that come out of a feeling of exile, that you are a pilgrim on a journey not just to kind of like settle down and live a good life, but that you were made for so much more than that, that the God who created you and me actually created us with this, this this, gap in our heart, this sense of exile, because he's the only one that can fill it and bring us home. And the second thing Peter does here, after kind of stressing the identity, which we'll unpack throughout this series more, is he uses a key word, if you caught it, dispersion. And that's not usually a word that you use, right? But dispersed, kind of the idea of being scattered or distributed or sowing a seed. The Greek word means exactly that. It's diaspora. It's the combination of two Greek words. And it means to to sow seed, to distribute. It, it To be a diasporic community, to live in the diaspora, is to be a community with a shared identity over and against the dominant cultural identity. It's quite a a jarring term. It's kind of a shocking term. And Peter identifies his Christian readers as exiles first, but then he locates them in the dispersion. He locates them in the diaspora. Why? To tell them how to live. To live in the diaspora isn't to just identify that you're in exile and then long for a way to get back, but it actually to identify the fact that you are in the diaspora is to say we're not going back and we can't, so we need to move forward. Walter Brueggemann, po- possibly the Old Testament scholar who's done more work on exile than any other, sums up the, the difference here between just exile and then diaspora. Listen what he says. Diaspora is a practice of life and faith among those who are far from home, who settle in new contexts that become home with no serious expectation of ever returning home or returning to an old normalcy. He continues, Exile might be the hope of recovery for the way that the church used to be, applying it to you and I now, Whereas diaspora is a recognition that there will not be any return home and there will not be a recovery of any old normalcy. By p- using that word diaspora, dispersion, what Peter is doing is he's actually assuming the prophetic voice in the truest sense of the Old Testament prophet. Now, I know sometimes you hear the word prophet and you think of, you know, very strange things or, you know, very transcendental experiences and oracles from the Lord. But really in the Old Testament prophetic office, what prophets did more than anything is that they spoke for God and about God when people were separated from God. And almost every prophetic book in the Old Testament was written either during an exile or after one or pre-exile and warning of one to come. That's what the prophetic message did. So the prophetic message summed up in the Old Testament is, you are not at home. And Peter assumes this prophetic voice to say, you are not at home. Don't settle in. Don't forget that you don't belong here. This isn't home. That's what he's saying. See, you see, while in exile... When we are in exile, it's so easy to look for comfort objects and immediate gratification and false narratives and objects of hope and joy and satisfaction and forget who God is and lose hope in his promises and in his goodness. And Peter is reminding people that are in very hard times And we're going to unpack this more about suffering and joy and what Peter does with that. But he's reminding people in the midst of hardship not to just settle for other objects, for other things to comfort them and to, to satisfy them, but to continue to look forward because you're in the diaspora. Don't settle. You're not home. And Peter follows this up in the second verse, and this is, this is as far as we're going to get this week. But here's why he does this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, his identity, to those who are elect exiled, exiles, their identity, says this, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ by the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Notice what Peter does here is he says, all of this is happening according to the foreknowledge. And then he lays out a beautiful Trinitarian theology here of God the Father set apart or made holy by the spirit and sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ Christ And he says two things, may grace and peace be multiplied. I don't know about you, but being in the midst of such a strange and unknown situation, to rest in the foreknowledge of God and to know that there's more grace and more peace that can be multiplied to you and I is such a great comfort in the midst of a season like this. And I know it's so simple yet profound of a reminder for Peter to start and just go, God is in control. <laughs> that, that it's his, his foreknowledge, that, that God is in control of this, that he's not surprised by this, that he's not surprised about what you're going through, what we are going through. And even more than that, grace and peace is available because he's not far from it. He's not far from you in it. And just hear me, wherever you kind of land on like predestination and foreknowledge, don't, don't let that get you hung up on foreknowledge. the foreknowledge of God just kind of being an intellectual or theological idea to, to ponder. This, the foreknowledge of God is not that. The foreknowledge of God is actually a posture of submission. It's a posture of, of, of rest. Why? Because if God is in control, you and I are not. And that's good news. That so much of our life and so much of our society spends their time and energy just grasping for control. And then something like the coronavirus can come around and literally tear all semblance of control that we thought we have out from under our fingers. But for the Christian identity, God is in control. (laughs) That, that, That the foreknowledge of God the Father set apart by the spirit and sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ, that that is our identity. Peter reminds his audience of this because we need reminding of it now. (laughs) That he's reminding the first century church that God is in control and that this didn't catch him off guard because we also need to be reminded of this. And Dr. Beach continues in his book and he says this again in the Western church today. Much around us offers evidence that Jesus has lost in the war of the gods. The gods of consumerism and hedonism and agnosticism seem to have a lot more momentum these days. While most in the church may want to believe that their God is ultimately in control, everything around them calls that claim into question. And Peter says this to resist exactly that. Peter says this to shift our gaze from the fading and failing objects of worship of culture and shifts it to the unfading, unfailing, triune community of love. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, who always was and always will be in full control over history. And then he says, because of that reality, grace and peace, grace and peace. Now it's it's easy to kind of skim over some of the greetings that we see in the New Testament. I mean, Paul's are just, I mean, so rich with language when you slow down and actually go word for word. But sometimes we just kind of like, oh, grace and peace to you. And then we're like, okay, let's get to the, let's get to the good stuff. But Peter does this. He He identifies himself and then he identifies the elect exiles and then he shifts their attention to the identity of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. And then he says, because that's true, we get to experience grace and peace. That this is unique to the gospel. That the gospel is a good news announcement of the kingdom and that we are all welcomed home not by what we do or by our merit or by our good morality or just kind of being better than the other guy or the other girl, but that it's by grace. That grace is a gift given to you and I that takes orphans who are strangers and adopts them and brings them home. The gospel can be summarized, not only just that Jesus saves sinners, amen, but that God the Father brings orphans home. That that he sets slaves free, that that all power, including death itself, is rendered powerless by the grace of God the Father revealed through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. And Peter's a product of that. Peter has experienced that. Peter's identity has been changed by that. And the same invitation is offered to you and me. And a little bit later in chapter 5, I know we're kind of skipping to the end, but... Peter says, after suffering a little while, the God of all grace, (laughs) the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. (sighs) Peter ends there because he's not just the God of some grace. He's the God of all grace. And notice that he says it's, it's the eternal glory in Christ. And that's our true home. That our, that our true home is not, not found in a person here. It's not found in, a, in possessions. It's not found in an experience. It's not found in, in stuff here, but it's found in a person and it's found in Christ. It says it's in Christ's love. It's in Christ's power. It's in Christ's kingdom that we experience grace and ultimately peace. And that word peace in the Hebrew Bible is so significant because it, it, means, it means rest, but even more than that, it, rem- it means order. That everything is where it's supposed to be that your homesickness and not at homeness and mine is only going to be restored and healed and fixed and renewed when everything is fixed by shalom. And the New Testament and the gospel shows up and says that that peace is offered by the blood of Christ. That's what Peter says. (laughs) And Jesus taught his disciples that if I don't wash you, you don't belong to me. And so the only prerequisite of coming home in Christ to Christ to experience this grace and peace is that you and I would admit that that we're not in control. (laughs) That as I build my own little kingdom here, that it's not going to be sufficient, that it's not gonna stand the test of time, that your name and mine will be forgotten one day and that the only name that will ever ring true across all creation is the name of Jesus Christ. And that you and I, are invited to turn away from false homes, <laughs> false hopes, looking to non gods and and false gods and fake gods and artificial gods that promise to bring us home, but never will. New Testament scholar uh, Scott McKnight says that the kingdom language Jesus uses is end of exile language. <laughs> that that the end of exile in the negative sense, is followed by the kingdom coming in the positive sense. And that's so true. As Jesus comes and announces the kingdom, he lays his life down as the king to bring sons and daughters who have run off out of home and bring them home to God the Father by the power of the Spirit. But for you and I today, unlike exiles who kind of long to get back home, Christ actually invites his followers not back to get back home, but forward. Forward to a new home, forward to a new hope. In the language of, the, of, of Hebrews in the New Testament, a better country, right? Like a heavenly country. So that, that's, that's my hope, that's my prayer as we go through 1 Peter, that, that for you and I, we would learn daily as elect exiles to, to find our home, our true home in Christ, that we would wrestle with and resist all of the other things that just kind of come to fight for your allegiance and mine fight for kind of just chief place in our heart and that Christ and his blood and his sacrifice for you and I would give us an identity that, that, that doesn't even compare. That it's the identity of God, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit that would invite us into this community of love forever And that the gospel is the announcement of the kingdom that that is already available to you and me. Let me pray for us to that end. God, if there's one thing that's true about you and your nature and your character, it's that you don't stand far off from your creation. And God, I just pray that even now, that spirit, you would remind everyone that needs it, that you are closer than they could imagine that you are more present, that you are more aware, that you are more in control than they could ever imagine and that that is good news. I pray that we would, again, just experience a true repentance and a submission in our heart and that we would turn away from just false hopes, false homes, that we would understand an identity that is given to us despite us, not because of us, that we can't earn it that this grace is free, but that the cost is high because of you and who you are and your life that was laid down for us. I just pray that you would apply that to us fresh and maybe for some of us for the very first time and that today, (laughs) wherever we find ourselves, on whatever screen we're using for this, that, that our heart would surrender and submit for the first time and find our home in Christ. The only true home that ever will withstand withstand the time uh, the, the, the test of history and it will last forever. We love you we need you and ask that you would do this for your name's sake in Jesus name Amen.